Welcome to the Inception Family Wealth Hour podcast. I'm your host, Chris Delaney. I'm the author of The Naked Opus, Growing Your Family Wealth for the Long Term, available on Amazon and at chapters and indigo stores across Canada, as well as at www.nakedopus.com. You can also contact me for event speaking and webinars at chris at nakedopus.com. This week, we're wrapping up a fun and wide-ranging interview with Dr. Tom Deans, who is the author of Willing Wisdom and Every Family's Business. In this episode, Tom will be discussing how to empower the next generation through transparency and family meetings, how estate planning is really meant for the living, and how to put the fun back into funerals. Now, let's rejoin our conversation with Dr. Tom Deans. What do you think that gives the the, the other the, the the recipients of that request for help permission to do? I, I think it gives them permission to grow up. There's a lot of children in family businesses. When I say children, you know, in their 40s, 50s, and 60s, children who have been infantilized and who have allowed themselves to be infantilized by their parents, never really allowing themselves to grow up and. And, and exercise control over their own domain. They've allowed someone wrap the question of when the voting shares will transition. They've allowed their parents to wrap that in, in secrecy because they've, they've been afraid to be, uh, you know, push the subject into the fore. I mean, at some point, someone has to grow up and drive these conversations. And it's probably an epiphany as well for because there is a mythical quality that's built up in family businesses in particular about almost like the, an infallibility of the creator that they didn't ever make mistakes and, and that they knew all the answers and somehow all the success was what was going to happen instead of really, as you mentioned, there could have been some good luck in there. Um, Showing those moments of vulnerability is incredibly powerful. Well, listen, it's interesting you say that because some of the best family meetings, first of all, some of the best family meetings are, have three generations there. And people go, well, what's an appropriate age? I've seen toddlers running around family meetings. I've seen nannies in the family meetings. Like it's just <laughs> it's like an incredible commitment to transparency. And, and I, I, I just think that that culture is, is when, when, the founders make themselves very tiny, very, very tiny in the process. The family meeting isn't about them and them exercising their power and control and, you know, making proclamations and asking questions and whoever gives the best answers is going to get more. That is not what I'm seeing. I'm seeing the opposite. I'm seeing the matriarchs and patriarchs, you know, I was in a family meeting where a 15-year-old girl was chairing the meeting. Fabulous. It's unbelievable. Like that kind of wisdom, creating the space and the conditions for the next generation. Are you ready for this? Not to be just as good as the great almighty founder, but better. Better. Bolder. That is, that's a moment. That isn't a moment in a family meeting, when you see that, you see the way they're investing in the next generation and preparing heirs. And that bigger and better and bolder may have nothing to do with the business. 
or everything to do with the business. But that's going to be a decision by the next generation because they've been given that space to make those decisions on their own. And, and that permission to grow up is, is in, an incredibly important concept. And I think that, that that is something that is overlooked in planning as well, because it does tend to be very dictatorial. There's a fair bit of research that shows that the, the primary, oftentimes anyways, the, the, the primary reason that financial capital exists at all and, and this is something Jay Hughes, I, I'm paraphrasing hopefully accurately here, uh, uh, would, would, would agree with, is to invest in the intellectual, social, and, and importantly, the human capital of the family. And I think that that's part of the message that you are sharing here too, is that, that the, the, the business is another form of capital, but the discussions and the process that we have around being stewards of that wealth creates uh, an investment in the growth of the people that that wealth exists to serve. And that really is what the family meetings help to build uh, capacity around and what the whole process of, of transparent estate and family business succession discussions creates at the end of the day. And it's, and it's multi-generational in its, in its benefit because they will learn, the next generation will learn that this is a good process. I mean, that's your book, Tom. Your book was that you learned this from your family, you've replicated that and you've had success as a result. Well, you know, it's interesting because, you know, these questions in every family's business, I mean, they're not mine. <laughs> I, shamelessly, right. I shamelessly monetize the questions that were being asked of me. I mean, my father could have given me a free plastics company. You know what he gave me that has actually turned out to be way more valuable, financially valuable? What's that? These questions. Yeah. The wisdom, the opportunity to go off and do something that I really love, that I'm really good at. I mean, that was improbable without the gift that he gave me. And these questions, you describe the 12 questions as your family blueprint in uh, every family's business. And, and the, the 12 of them, you know, we, we, I, I want people to get your book because I want them to read it and read the narrative that feeds the, the questions and shows how they work. But maybe we could talk about a couple of them. The first question, the first uh, uh, element of your family blueprint was, what does your family look like? in five years. I think that's something that, you know, we, we mentioned that if they do nothing else out of this morning's podcast, that this afternoon, families should get together and start talking about this. And that could be question number one. What do you mean by that? Five years, uh, uh, you know, and, and, and in the context of a pandemic, that might even be a short time or, or a, a, a too long of a line a timeline for some businesses. But what's the benefit of that? What's the benefit of that looking forward collectively for five years to see what it's going to look like? So there's a reason why, uh, Chris, that that's, that's question number one. In fact, the sequence of the questions were really important of the 12. So question number one, what's your business look like in five years was quite deliberate because my, my father was really trying to find out what my vision was for the business. And I'm very quick to remind advisors who are using these questions uh, with their business owner clients that if, for example, 
that question is asked of a, a next gen and they answer the question something like this, what's the business look like in five years? And they answer, oh gosh, uh, I don't know. Uh, you know, uh, I'm bigger and stuff. My advice, probably not worthwhile moving to question number two. Right. If that next gen says, really? I, you've never asked me what my vision for the business is. Um, well, if you're asking, here's what I'm suggesting. We have two product lines that are running at a negative gross margin. We need to discontinue those products. We, would, uh, we, should, take, uh, we should take that division and sell it. We should take the proceeds and double down in some new technology. And by the way, our online marketing, smart marketing sucks. Like we need to do seriously get cracking on that. We're uh, too heavy at the top. We need more. Uh, we need more salespeople. We need to rebrand. Blah 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 blah. Like they owners have clear ideas where they want to go. Good employees, maybe good employees, but they have no vision. They have no passion for innovation, for change, for pivoting. That question at the very beginning of a business transition conversation, a family conversation, is crucial. Just listen. And sometimes the next generation goes, what does the business look like in five years? <laughs> it looks like sold. It looks like it should be sold in five years. We are done. We are too tiny. All of our competitors are billion dollar companies. We, 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 we're punching above our weight. We either get really big or we get out. Or what does this business look like in five years? Well, it better be five times the size that it is right now because we won't be able to compete in five years. You see, you see what that answer can provoke? I can see that that is a, that's going to be a very multi-perspective conversation. Uh, you know, I would imagine you'd want that to be facilitated with someone expert like yourself to, to do that. Um, but I can see what that would provoke because you're going to have potentially, you know, you may have a husband and a wife and say three children in the room. You're going to have five different answers possibly for that question. And that's okay. Oh, absolutely. I mean, absolutely. You, I mean, you really, again, you want to create, you want to create space for people who have different opinions. I mean, that's the best, the best answers come out of, out of different opinions and creating that safe space for those for those answers to emerge and that's uh, going to to to, to you, you can sorry. see the, the the business owner who is really enamored with exercising control they, they won't even ask this question they'll they, they'll never do this they'll never buy the book they'll never do this question because they don't want to hear the answer um and and it's possible that that kind of a business owner is not going to have family members that are going to be able to give a visionary statement anyways, because they haven't been properly prepared to even think in those terms. Right, right. You, I mean, you can start this process really, I mean, you could have kids who are just starting the business in their 20s. I mean, these questions, it's, it's not about one and done. It's about, you know, at least annually asking these questions and, and, and writing down the answers and keeping them and reviewing those answers. It is remarkable how the answers evolve over time, mm -hmm. as do the businesses, as do, as, as do people's relationship with those businesses change. 
there's a great scene in uh, Wolf of Wall Street. It actually appears twice, where the the Justin or where the the, the principal character uh, says, "Sell me this pen," and and a succession of people, Tom. You know, oh, it's a lovely pen. It's got nice weight, good color. The ink is nice. And finally, he gets to someone in one of these sessions that he's running, and the person says, "You know, when was the last time you you used a pen? What did you use it for when you were writing it down?" And and when we think about the solemnity and the importance of writing down our commitments and our thoughts, I think you're absolutely right. There is a there is a sense of of uh, responsibility for the answers that we give when we bother to have a process where we're writing down our public answers to these kinds of questions. And then they can evolve over time, of course, but you've always got that commitment that they initially put. Whereas if, you, if you're very informal and you just uh, allow sort of a shrug of the shoulders and things like that, that gives people that evasive, uh, that ability to evade their prior commitment. Um, I'm not saying they shouldn't change, but I'm, I, I am suggesting that you're, I, I want to harp on that point a little bit. That process where you write things down and you chronicle these meetings is absolutely critical. Yeah, I, and I think, uh, I think you're right. And I think that's why a lot of people, 12.5 million Canadians, don't have wills. I mean, it yeah. does actually force you to commit. And then it feels durable. And, and, and it feels like, well, what if I, I want to change my mind? Well, have a family meeting and change your mind. Right. But tell me how changing your mind and then dying and then having that change of mind being revealed while people are grieving, tell me how that's going to serve anyone. Like how, how? So I, I just, I don't know. I, I just, I'm so perplexed by the secrecy, whether it's the transition of a business, a cottage, a car, cash, you know, if you really look at what money is and what wealth is, it really is an expression of our energy, right? We invest our time in writing books and giving speeches and we get paid for that. And then I, you know, I purchase an investment. That investment is not, I mean, it's not cash. It's, it's, it's a reflection of the, my energy. And then for someone to take their entire life's work as represented by their energy and then just go, oh, whatever. <laughs> it's staggering. It's absolutely staggering. And I have read effectively, you know, people with significant and complicated wealth with a family business where the will probably could have come from a will kit. And that's not to, you know, it, a will kit's probably better than nothing. But no thought went into it. Uh, it. It really was just a distributive tool instead of being an instructive tool, a, 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 a repository of wisdom. And I think that's a huge missed opportunity. family blueprint, Tom, and we won't go through all of them, but I, I wanted to highlight a couple because I thought they were particularly unique to, to your book. And, and I think that that's what makes them both counter, not so much counterintuitive, but as you said, contrarian, but also so very valuable. The, the, the fourth point is, do you understand and agree that in the interest of maximizing shareholder value, this business can be sold to a third party at any time? I have got to believe that when you 
when you talk to people in some of your audiences or some advisors, the hair gets lit on fire with that one. Oh, yeah. Especially, Maybe more than yeah. any other question you have. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> it, it, it is. That's kind of really where the rubber hits the road. I mean, it really. And you'll notice, like, there's no room to, to equivocate. No. It's like, yes or no. Don't blah, 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 blah. Hey, dude, do you want to risk your capital and buy this business? Yes or no? Drive a stake in the ground. No right or wrong answer. There's no right or wrong answer. It's just clarity. And, and I don't know. I, I just think with the first two and three questions, whether or not, they just reveal whether or not you've got an active seller and an active buyer. Yeah. Yes or no. And watch what happens. I mean, you have founders today who think that their kids are going to buy it. You've got kids who think that their parents are going to gift it. And everyone's making assumptions and no, and no one knows. It's like, and this, this little dance doesn't go on for a year. It goes on for like decades. And then and finally, someone dies. Like, I, I, it's just, it's craziness. Well, and, and this pandemic, I think, uh, I mean, I'm not sure, and you may disagree, I'm not sure it has created unique change, but I think it certainly is going to accelerate things that were already going to happen. Um, and a lot of family businesses right now are going to be sitting down having these conversations under very stressed conditions. And the ability to maximize shareholder value is probably gone. It's certainly and gone certainly gone in the short term and so yeah so this this pandemic is going to amplify all the great things about family working shoulder to shoulder and it is going to amplify all the, the all the challenges all the dysfunction all the schisms that are that are alive and well and in, in a lot of family businesses particularly with multiple uh, family members uh, siblings so yeah, I think it's just going to be a really, really interesting ride uh, for the next uh, two to three years as people fix what has been literally uh, destroyed in the matter of nine weeks. And it really wasn't a black swan event. I mean, we've had pandemics before, and in many ways, this although it it's very severe. Don't get me wrong, but but an event like this is akin to. You know, if you're a business that uh, is exposed on a, uh, and, you, and you talk about the importance of doing a, a SWOT analysis, if you're exposed to existential risk because of changes in, in uh, uh, the digital world, for example, those things happen overnight. And this happened overnight. And it's not, it, it, it's how we respond to these. We can, we can, we don't necessarily predict that a pandemic's going to occur, but we can predict that in a very short period of time, our business is no longer a functioning business. Um, and, and plan for that and what that's going to look like as a family as well. Um, and, and so I, I think that the, the, the black swan in these kinds of events is really the mindset of the, the, the decision makers in the family in responding to the crisis that is leading to, to you know, live and die uh, uh, for the business, uh, decision-making. Yep. I think a lot of people have always defined risk as, you know, things that you can buy insurance for, floods, fires, um, I don't know, whatever. 
but really, when I talk about risks, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about really in the, in the epistemological sense, how do we know what we don't know? How do we know what we do know? We don't know what we don't know. Like there's just, when I talk about risks, I'm talking <laughs> about things that we, that literally come right out of left field and not only destroy us, but maybe destroy our customers. Like maybe they don't touch us other than the fact that they just wipe out our customers, which wipe us out. That with, through no fault of our own or lack of planning, just and so when a business, a family has doubled down and hoarded their wealth in that operating business, and they have no plan B, like this is devastating. People don't just lose their job; they lose their life savings. They lose everything because of this idea that the family business is the the great the great investment, the the only great investment. It's and it's super super dangerous. It's just an alternative source of capital deployment is uh, part of your message, I think. Well, um, yeah, sorry. And I would, I would go on and say that, you know, there isn't a business owner on this planet who hasn't made money by absolutely raining down havoc on some lesser prepared, talented competitor. And then I say to that business owner, so what makes you special? What makes you think that you're exempt from the laws and the vicissitudes of the market? You're not, you maybe have been better in that particular scenario, but there's someone working away diligently to make you irrelevant. You're not exempt. No. <laughs> it's, it's a fun conversation. And there's a hubris that goes with that that is, is very revealing about the mindset of the, of the ownership as well. And those are some boundaries that are being, going to have to be dealt with in the planning process if they view the world like that. One of the, my favorite conversations to have with business owners, and it 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 often um, it, it's fun because you see twinkles of reflection uh, as they're thinking about the question that that were different when they were giving other answers. And I would always ask them, "What was the what was the moment where luck played the most critical, whether it was bad or good, or someone else's bad luck?" but it was luck, something you didn't plan for. Uh, you know, maybe a competitor's marriage uh, falls apart and they're forced to sell the business to do a division of property settlement. And you were able to pick up a competitor and solidify a market when you never were planning for that. And, and it was not something you were, you were uh, uh, anticipating was going to come along at least the way it did. And when they reflect on that, it does change how they view their planning a little bit, that element of luck um, and how things can go the other way in the wink of an eye. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, yeah. I, I, mean I, I see it certainly with business owners who have sold and then they, they're very, usually very reflective in the first year after the sale. And as they're looking back, they'll often talk about more, more candidly than active founders, um, the sellers will actually reflect back and, and be quite candid about how lucky they were to have done what they have done and reveal those moments where they know there were. And I find them, a lot of them are really gracious. There's a lot of gratitude when a business owner, I think, tackles that big fear of who will I be after I sell or transition. I think when they go off and explore that thing that they were never 
really had the time or the money to do, whether it's philanthropy or teaching an MBA course or learning the violin or whatever it is, when they get to indulge and uh, at that intersection when they've got time and money after a sale, it's, uh, it, it's pretty, they're, they're pretty amazing people. And, uh, and it's nice to see them cross that divide. The number of, but, but the number of founders who never explore that, they don't have hobbies, they are the business, the business yeah. is them. And they've actually wired the thing to actually destroy itself when they're not here. And then I think in a kind of perverse way, they think that everyone will kind of gather around and say, my God, Larry, keep on picking on Larry, but my God, Larry was so fantastic. <laughs> I mean, Larry died and then immediately so did the business. I mean, that's how smart he was. Only he could run the business. I mean, you can see how perverted that, that logic is. It makes no sense. And I think one of the benefits of your family blueprint and the process that your book reveals is that taking the time to have these conversations allows the owners of the business, maybe the, the, the initial founders of the business, to, to view... A, a post-business life for themselves and a context for their own meaning um, in a way that showing up every day and, and dying in the saddle as the only alternative just doesn't allow them to, to grow. Uh, because it's not just growing up that the, the next generation has to do. I, I think that the, it's a responsibility of the first generation to grow into their new role as well. They have to find that voice. Yeah, I, I, it's not only good for them to do that, but it's really great for the family. Um, yeah. It's really great for the family. I mean, we, we have lost sight of what the very word, the very meaning of patriarch and matriarch. We, it's become really a kind of a distant idea. But there was a moment in our country's history where when you were old and you were retired and you spoke, people sure as hell listened. I mean, people are like, that is hard earned wisdom. Why wouldn't you? <laughs> Why wouldn't you listen? And that, that role has really been undervalued and diminished. I, I don't know when it started, but I certainly get the feeling that people are left now with the idea that if you're not earning income, you have no value. And when you're retired, you have no value. And I, I think as, as, Commerce moves quickly. I think we will find that doubling back and, and re-engaging with that wisdom, we, we can be really well served by that, both the retired person and the people listening. I love that because that's an integration of both of your books. Uh, you know, there's planning for the wealth while it is in your control and in operationally growing. And then there's planning for that transition of it as well. And what's the true meaning of that? Well, I've often thought, uh, and you can tell me whether you agree with this, when, when I would meet with, uh, it was often grandparents, when we were talking about the grandchildren and planning for the, we, we talked about the kids, you know, how, how would you like this wealth to transition to your children? it was hard to get them enthused. It wasn't that they weren't caring, but it was hard to get them enthused. But the minute a grandchild's conversation or name came up, their eyes lit up and, and that there's a different relationship. Uh, and, and I often thought, you know, grandparents and grandchildren were natural allies. They have this common enemy in the, in the middle. Um, uh, and, and, and that might've been, been part of it. But then I discovered that there was some research that showed uh, that, Attitudes toward money, for example, it's, 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 it's actually uh, 
statistically able to be shown that grandchildren, when they're exposed to it, have a more easy uptake on their grandparents' values towards wealth and towards money and what it's for and how to use it. Then they do, they're more oppositional with their parents. They're much more accepting of what their grandparents will communicate. And that's a huge opportunity. It is for certainly for three generation family meetings, which I advocate in the book. I mean, I think when you have grandparents, parents and kids uh, in a room talking about the history of the struggle to create wealth, holy smokes, those, those are magic moments when uh, when the when the when the positive and the negative has been shared, like the failures and the, those moments of greatness and <laughs> all in the same context of teaching it so that the next generation, you know, uh, on board that wisdom without having to grind it, you know, and, and make the same mistakes. And those are great gifts. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's it's a Chris, it's a fascinating subject. It is. And, and Tom, you know, this, this pandemic's probably going to, maybe we'll, we'll, we'll conclude our interview on this. You've been very gracious and generous with your time. This pandemic's probably going to cause a lot of people to review their, their business transition plans. What advice do you have for them? I mean, other than picking up your book and, and starting this afternoon, what's the, what's the lesson that we can learn from, from what we're experiencing right now? You went through this in 2009. Um, what are some of the some of the the, the, the key things you could share with uh, our listeners that they need to be thinking about, need to be doing? The, I think the biggest takeaway from both my books is one universal theme is that your greatest asset, whether you're a business owner or not, your 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 greatest asset is it's not your wealth; it is your family, and you're going to learn that when you become dependent on them late in life. And so when we start to invest in family relationships, certainly if we have surplus capital and we can start to transition that capital to the next generation and, and, and then ask them whether or not they want to return it to purchase the shares in the business at full market value. I mean, these are great moments, regardless of the answer. But when we look at our wealth and understand that we have a duty when we've earned it to actually invest in, in, the, in the transition of that wealth, give it the same kind of energy and the same kind of commitment to transition it, to understand that that wealth will have a profound impact on the next generation by either releasing potential or accelerating demise. It will do one or the other. And so we have a duty. We have a duty to really invest in the greatest asset of all. And as I said, that's our, that's our family. Thanks for wow. having me. <laughs> oh, Tom, it's been fantastic. And, and uh, I really appreciate your, your insight and your willingness to, uh, to share not just the, the, the elements of your book, but your experiences of your, your, your personal, uh, your, your, your family's personal experiences with this. Tom, I know you've got, in addition to the two books, you've got some other things on the go that you share with advisors. Do you mind just taking a quick moment to share with us? We've probably got some financial advisors and other advisors who will be listening to this podcast. Um, you've got some other things that you do. You have a digital uh, uh, product that you offer. Do you want to take a moment and just share with us what that does for them and how yeah, they can sure. contact you if they want to get copies of your book or have you as a speaker? Sure, absolutely. Well, the best way is always through my website, and, and I have two websites, so the title of my books. So the first website is everyfamiliesbusiness.com and willingwisdom.com. And um, 
And then you're right, Chris, I do have a, a digital client engagement tool. It's an educational tool that, um, that advisors are sharing with their clients, one and two, who don't have a will. <laughs> including, half, including half of all financial advisors. I mean, my, my message to advisors is, look, you, need, you should take, get this tool. And it's, um, it's called the Willing Wisdom Index. It takes literally eight minutes to answer 60 questions on a checklist, which produces an incredible to-do list. It basically reveals the gaps in the state plans. And a lot of those gaps revolve around the things we've been talking about, right? The lack of family meetings. You're, you, you haven't shared your documents with your executor. Your executor doesn't even know you've named them executor. Like all, <laughs> all sorts of really fun. It's a really fun tool. It's, it's meant to, to put the fun back in funeral. <laughs> it really does. We, we do not have to make estate planning this dark, sad, morose subject. It can be fun and it should be fun. When we answer the question, you know, how am I going to divide my stuff? Who's going to take care of me when I'm old? It can, it, when we can tackle this stuff and bring clarity, uh, we can get on with living. It's, I, I say, you know, Chris, a lot of people are gripped by the fear of death. And really what I'm talking about is using death and its certainty to get on with living. When we can do our end of life planning and involve people in those decisions and know that we're not going to die alone, but we're going to die with people holding our hands and, and caring for us because we made that a decision and we invested in that idea. That's living. That's estate planning. It is for the living. And I, I suspect if you're, if you're compelled enough to buy that message, you'll want to read the book and you'll want to take a look um, at the Willing Wisdom Index. It's a great tool. Fabulous. Well, and it's creating conversations. Both your books are about creating conversations. And I think we both agree that this conversation will help people and having conversations about a topic that is too often kept in the dark and too often felt to be so sensitive or so private or because it's about money, too delicate, uh, is, is left until times when change cannot be made, conversations cannot be had, and then bad feelings and really broken legacies end up being created. You know, your efforts in this space are uh, really helping people do better planning, helping advisors provide better advice. Uh, and at the end of the day, um, you know, I love the, the and we can conclude on that, helping people get on with living instead of worrying about dying. And that's really, um, that's really a, a wonderful message to take away from, from uh, a couple of hours of reading um, and, and a real gift to people that pick up the book. And kudos to advisors who have these events and bring you out and share the book with their, uh, with their clients because they really are giving them quite a gift. Uh, when they do that. Tom, thank you so much for joining uh, me today. Um, I really appreciate your time and your wisdom. And uh, I will, on the uh, podcast, when it is uh, put up for, for distribution, I will also include on the show notes your web address so that people can reach out to you. And uh, thank you once again. Chris, a fascinating, free-ranging conversation. I really enjoyed it. Good. All right. Take care.
Well, if you're wondering why that transition music was there, last week someone said they loved the show, but it needed more cowbell. So there you have it, more cowbell. Many thanks to Dr. Tom Deans, author of Every Family's Business and Willing Wisdom, for sharing his thoughts across two episodes of Inception Family Wealth Hour podcast. Tom's contact information can be obtained out of the show notes. Next week, our show will feature a very interesting and very special conversation with entrepreneur Erin Burry. She is the CEO of a new business called Willful. Willful provides important will and power of attorney products for Canadians. Erin will be describing what got her into the business, why it's so important to her, and she'll be answering the show question, what if I have a straightforward and simple situation and need a will and powers of attorney? So join us next week for this wide-ranging and fun conversation. And now, let's exit with more cowbell. <laughs>